0: Lessons in Spirit-Filled Living, lesson number five. And if you've been paying attention to that upper right corner, it's been all goofed up in recent weeks. But I'm back on track now. The dates are wrong, but um, at any rate, this morning uh, we're back where we need to be. And the last three Sundays we have been studying... Uh, what it means to be free from the law, the relationship between uh, law and grace, and the fact that um, Jesus releases us from the bondage of the law in several ways. There are several laws. The law of sin and death, we have been released from. Uh, The law of the Old Testament we have been released from. And we looked last week at Romans 8 that the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us, not by us, but in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So when we are living in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are free from the law Nonetheless, we emulate or manifest the character of God because the Holy Spirit reproduces Him perfectly within our lives. And so, we've been looking at what it means to be free from law and living in grace. And by way of introduction, I want to say to you this morning that coming into the rest of God, and by rest we mean like you do when you sleep, not like the rest of Him, the whole of Him, but the rest that He gives us when we abide in Jesus Christ, that the rest of God can only be possible when we understand freedom from the law. Because as long as we live under the bondage of the law, we are laboriously striving to please Him through the best we can in our own strength. And let me say here parenthetically that a lot of people talk about spiritual Christians carnal Christians, and then non-Christians, or unbelievers. And we have a tendency to think that carnal Christians are Christians who do, they live terrible ways. Um, their lives are immersed in sin and Uh, They're not living according to uh, biblical truth and, and character. But that is not the definition of a carnal Christian. If a person is a sincere and true believer and they happen to live that way, certainly they're being carnal. But that is not the definition of a carnal Christian according to Paul. In the Corinthian letters, a carnal Christian is a Christian who is trying to live for God. Underscore that, trying to live for God in the strength of their own flesh or ability. In other words, they're carnal because they're trying to keep up a Christian front of Christian uh, obedience by the power of their own strength and that always ends up in frustration and failure because we do not have that ability within ourselves to live according to the requirements of the law in fact the Jews never had that ability You notice that as soon as God gave the law, uh, among the things He gave next were the, uh, the sacrificial ordinances that allowed them to come and bring sacrifices for sin because He knew they would fail. And they needed a way to experience atonement and to forecast the final atonement that Jesus Christ would make on their behalf. So, God never expected the Jews to keep the law. And He doesn't expect us to keep the law. The law represents His character, which can only be manifest when we are living in the power of the Holy Spirit, and His life is reflecting Jesus through us. Now, I've broken this down into three segments this morning, and to be honest with you, at one time or another, you've heard me speak on each one of these segments. I don't know that I've ever put them together in this way, but you have heard me speak on these different segments. But this morning I want us to look at them uh, in conjunction with one another because they really go together. First of all, crossing the Jordan and entering the promised land, uh, that's found in Joshua chapter 4 verses uh, 1 to 9. And let me dial the clock back from the Jordan experience a bit to Egypt And remind us of the experience that the Israelites had leaving the land of Egypt. First of all, Egypt was a land of bondage. Do you recall that? They were forced to do labor. And when Moses said, let my people go, uh, Pharaoh did none other than increase their burden and make heavier their labor because he wanted to uh, get their attention and say, you can't pay attention to this crazy guy Moses, you belong to me, you're my slaves. It was a land of slavery. And yet, God led through a sequence of plagues that was intended to get Pharaoh's attention. And the last of those plagues was the death of the firstborn. And you recall that the Israelites on that night were told to sacrifice a choice lamb from their flocks, one without blemish or spot, a perfect lamb. They were to sacrifice that lamb. They were to take some of the blood and place it on the doorpost and lintel of the doorway into their home. And when the death angel passed over, he would see that and he would pass over them. In other words, no one in that household would die. Now, if you think about the construction of a doorway with post and a lintel, you realize there are two upright posts and there's a top. And if you paint the blood on the doorpost and the lintel, you actually describe the sign of the cross. And that is a forecasting of the fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And the reason the death angel passed over the Israelites was because they were expressing faith in God that if they put their trust in His promise they would be spared. And that's, in fact, what happened. So the journey toward the promised land begins with the Passover. And then as they leave Egypt, Pharaoh has a change of heart and comes after them. And uh, they're pretty terrified by that. But God says to Moses, take your staff and hold it out over the Red Sea, because uh, they have gone as far as they could go. And here's this sea in front of them. And Moses did that, and God caused the waters to pile up in heaps on both sides. And the Israelites had a way to pass through on dry land. But as they finished crossing the Red Sea, the uh, Egyptians pursued them into the midst of the sea and died in a flood as God allowed the water to come back over them. And then when they got into the wilderness there were a series of lessons that they were to learn that pointed to them God's provision but every one of those lessons in one way or another was a type a prefigurement of Jesus Christ. Now when I when I use the word type I mean that it was a symbolic forecasting of Jesus Christ so you recall they came and ran out of water and they came to the waters of Mara and they were bitter and they couldn't drink them and God said take this branch that I will show you and cast it into the waters and they were made sweet and Jesus is our healing branch uh Another occasion, they were out, and God told Moses, Strike the rock with your staff. And as he did, the water came gushing forth out of the rock, and it flowed uh, in a stream that was available to them for refreshing water. That's kind of interesting, because later on... um, they came to the same predicament again and Moses got quite angry with them and he sort of blew a fuse he said how often do I have to teach you the same lessons over and over again how many times do I have to strike this rock and he took his staff and he struck the rock and the rock gushed forth water. But God said to him, Moses, because you have done this in an act of anger and rebellion, you will never set foot in the promised land. Why is that? Because that rock was a type of Jesus Christ who was Once and for all, sacrificed for our sin. And he never had to die again. And by striking the rock twice, Moses destroyed that type of Jesus Christ. You know, God is a gracious God, isn't He? Moses never got to go with the Israelites into the Promised Land. But do you know when he did see the Promised Land? He was standing on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah as they met with Jesus Christ. And God in His kindness uh, brought him back to get a glimpse of the promised land. There was the fiery serpent that as the Israelites encountered a whole infestation of poisonous snakes and they began to bite them. And they were dying because of the poison. Uh, God told Moses, he said, take a likeness of a fiery serpent and wrap it on a pole, on a, on a cross, and hold it up. And everyone who looks at that pole representing the serpent will be healed. And so, again... The only time I can think of in Scripture where a serpent actually reflects the character of Christ as the healer. But Moses held up that stake with the fiery serpent and every Israelite who looked at it was healed. And so in all of these ways, the wilderness wanderings were forecasting the coming of Jesus Christ. Even the tabernacle in the wilderness was a prefigurement of our own bodies that would be filled with the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah of God. And in His glory, we would reflect the Lord Jesus Christ in this temple As Paul says to the Corinthians, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you? And that tabernacle in the wilderness gives us insight and understanding into the temple that God has made us to be as we represent um, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... When they came to cross the Jordan River, remember, they were coming from the east and they were going to go across Jordan to the west into the land of Canaan, the land of promise. And you recall what God said uh, to, to Joshua. Moses has passed off the scene, Joshua has become the leader. And God says, have the priest bear the ark and go down to the Jordan River. Now, there are times of the year when the Jordan is just a thin trickle, basically. And there are other times of the year when it is essentially like a flood. It depends on uh, how much rain has uh, fallen in the Golan Heights and And the streams, the uh, springs that feed it. And this was at flood time. And the Jordan was out of its banks. And it was not a good time to cross the Jordan. But God said, I will make a way for you and take the ark and go down. And when your feet touch the waters, the waters will stand up in a heap. And so that's exactly what happened. And the Jordan, by the way, the name Jordan means descent. In fact, the Jordan River goes uh, over 2,000 feet down from its origin in the Golan Heights. And as it goes down to the Dead Sea, it goes to the lowest part of the earth. Um, and God said, take the ark. Go stand in the middle of it, and all the Israelites will cross on dry ground. And as they did that, when the last one in cross, God said to Joshua, Now listen, I want you to take 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan River, and I want you to take them up on the side, and I want you to build a monument that will be a reminder that... All of the forefathers crossed this Jordan on dry ground. And then I want you to take 12 stones representing one for each tribe of Israel. And I want you to go and put it in the middle of the Jordan where the priests are standing. And that will be a reminder that they passed through the waters to come to this promised land. And those 12 stones have great significance. The ones on the shore, on the bank, and the ones in the midst of the Jordan. Because the Jordan River is representative to us in symbolic fashion of going down into the waters of death. Do you recall the the formula that I often quote from Romans chapter 6 when someone is baptized, buried with Christ by baptism unto death and raised with Him to walk in newness of life. Those 12 stones in the middle represent the fact that the Israelites died to their own self-effort and energy there in the Jordan River. And that they would, from henceforth, live miraculous lives in the Promised Land. And those twelve stones that were set up as a monument uh, on the side were intended to reflect the fact that they had been risen out of the Jordan to enjoy the promised land. There's only one problem. They hadn't been there very long before they slipped back to their old ways. They started relying on their own wisdom. They got in trouble at Ai. They got in trouble in other places. Uh, before you know it, they were back to living their lives in the deeds of the flesh. And the scripture says in Joshua that there was no rest because of their unbelief. Actually, that may be Hebrews. So, if you don't find it in Joshua, write Hebrews down there. By the way, I found another typo in the introduction. And uh, if you catch it, you get extra points. Um, So... The Jordan River is symbolic of us passing through and going into the land of promise. And the Israelites did not experience that. However, Hebrews 4 tells us that the rest of God and gives us an invitation to restoration. Perhaps uh, we should read that. Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, For he said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, He again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, the point that I want to stand out here for us is that a Sabbath rest remains for the people of God. Now, he's writing to believers He's writing to people who have already trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The problem is they're having a very difficult time living that life with the persecution and opposition that they're getting. And he's reminding them that there is a Sabbath rest for those who will by faith believe God for the rest. Go back to creation for a moment (coughs) in your mind. can't go back any other way. But go back in your mind. And uh, if you go back in your mind and recall that God made the world in how many days? How many? Six. Okay, still didn't have enough time to get my um, cough drop unwrapped. So what did He do on the seventh day? He rested. When did He make Adam and Eve? Sixth day. What part of the sixth day? The end of it, the evening. What was their first day on the planet? The seventh day. Do you realize that God designed us, thank you, God designed us to rest in Him. Our first day was His day of rest. We were made to enjoy the Sabbath rest of God. Because of sin, we mess that up. But when we were first designed and made by God, we were created to enjoy His rest and to spend that first day of our lives with Him, abiding in Him. And so, we are able by faith to go back to that place and abide in the rest of God. And it is offered to us, all who will accept that rest by faith. Now, what is the rest of God? What does that include? Well, how many laws were there in the Garden of Eden? Ten Commandments? Two great laws? How many many rules? One, don't eat from this tree. Pretty simple. Don't eat from this tree. What else could they do? Anything, everything. They didn't have any restrictions. Now, for us to be in the Sabbath rest of God is for us to be free from the law not free to sin however we want. Paul makes that clear in Romans 6 when he talks about this same subject. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we sin that grace might increase? God forbid! How shall we that died to sin continue to live in it? We shouldn't. Of course not. But, how is it that we Abide in Jesus Christ and experience the Sabbath rest of God. We allow the Holy Spirit to live His life through us as we rest in Him. The Sabbath rest of God is available now. And so in the New Testament, the the New Testament term for the rest of God is is abiding in the vine. And Jesus explains this to us in John 15. Among other things, abiding in the vine means simply to hang on the vine, drawing from its food and water. How much effort does it take to hang on the vine? Have you ever been uh, rock climbing or rappelling no, how many of you have ever been rock climbing or rappelling? Okay, a few of you have. When you're uh, rappelling down the side of a rock face and, uh, you know, maybe you're tired and you just kind of kick back and relax. You've got this figure eight carabiner on your waist and you wrap the rope around it and and you just sit there. It takes no effort whatsoever to hang on the rope. It takes none. If you're climbing the rock and you slip and your belayer is paying attention, <laughs> you only go a few feet and then you just rest. Sometimes you need to just rest and kind of regroup and see what's up there. And so you just uh, kind of let go and kick back and look up the rock face. Because the rope is holding you. It takes no effort to hang on the vine. You don't have to work to hang on the vine. You don't have to labor hard to rest in Jesus. All you have to do is believe that He will hold you. Just like you put your confidence in your belayer who's got the rope. You count on Jesus holding you. He will give you rest. And those who abide in the vine, we're going to leave the rope now and go back to the fruit, go back to the vine. Those who abide in the vine draw from the nutrients and the water that the vine provides. How many of you like grapes? I like grapes. Unfortunately, did you know that grapes are the sweetest fruit um, they have a lot of sugar in them they 're also uh, pretty moist um, and when you bite them in your mouth, your mouth fills with liquid. Where in the world did it come from? The dirt <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> it came from the dirt. Utilized by the vine and translated into juicy fruit that is sweet and delectable and delicious. And so, when you abide in the vine, you draw your nutrients and you draw your liquid and you draw everything you need from the vine. You don't get it yourself. You don't throw down little shoots to the ground to suck up your own uh, water and fertilizer. You get it from Jesus. It comes from Him. And those who abide in Him will bear fruit. God designed us to be fruitful. We're supposed to be fruit bearers for Jesus that reflect His glory and His power. You remember what He said to the disciples in the preceding chapter? He says, the works that I have done, you will do also, and greater works than these, because... I'm going to my Father. And I will give you my Spirit. And when He comes, He will do in you the works that I have done and even more. When's the last time you were conscious of Jesus doing His works through you? Are you filled with the Spirit? Are you drawing your life from the vine? Or are you still struggling to live a Christian life based on your own efforts? It doesn't work that way. You don't have it in you to produce fruit. It comes from Him. Jesus said in chapter 15, verse 5, the last half of John, Without me, you can do nothing. What can you do without Jesus? How about being good parents? How about being a good uh, employee? How about fulfilling the fruit of the Spirit instead of the deeds of the flesh? Can you do that? You can't do that without Him. Without me, you can do nothing When I stand to bring you the Word of God on Sunday morning, I am conscious of the reality that unless He anoints and empowers, I'm just babbling. I can do nothing to transform your heart. I can't make you believe. I can't make you understand. Quite honestly, that's frustrating sometimes. I wonder to myself, did they get it? But I'm also aware that only the Holy Spirit can communicate it. Only the Holy Spirit can give life to the Word. I can speak the words, but only the Spirit can give life. Only He can open the eyes of your heart. Only He can make a difference. In this intimate relationship that we have with Jesus, we can ask whatever we wish and it will be done. It has been said that the only true work of the abiding believer is prayer. Until we pray, there's nothing we can do. Once we have prayed, there is nothing. He cannot do through us. We must abide in the vine. And that is the essence of the Spirit-filled life. If you want to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit, you need to come to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I recognize I can't live this Christian life. I can't do this on my own. I cannot be a solid Christian apart from you. I need you to live your life in me. I need you to manifest your glory through me. You're the only one that can do that. And I'm going to count on you to guide my life. Warn me when I'm about to do something you don't want done and empower me to be obedient. And motivate me to do the things that you want to do and empower me to do them in your strength. Magnify the name of Jesus. Father, I pray this morning that you would give us a hunger and a thirst for your spirit that we would learn what it means to come to the Sabbath rest, to enjoy the bounty of Your presence, to abide in the vine, and to experience the life of Jesus coursing through us, producing fruit that will last eternally. I ask it in His precious name. Amen.